0: Welcome to the Broadcorp Report with your hosts Becky Allery and Michael Broadcorp. I am the moderator Todd Walker, sitting back listening and learning from the pros. ...that have worked for a number of different campaigns, and uh, they bring their insights every week. But I have to give a shout-out to last week's show, episode 11 of the BroadCorp Report. If you didn't hear it, go out and look for it. We were invited by the DFL, Ken Martin and his team from the DFL Debrief, to uh, be at Democrat headquarters... ...and do a joint crossover show with their team and our team. It was a lot of fun. I'd uh, suggest you... Uh, Take a listen to the DFL debrief. Listen to our show and listen to the crossover. Definitely was a great time. Michael, Becky, what, what was your thoughts? Uh, that was an interesting experience.
1: I had a great time. You know, I think that one thing that we need more of is Republicans, Democrats being able to sit down and have conversations without throwing out, you know, just angry, throwing mud. You know, I, I, I spent 10 years. That was my job of throwing mud, I, I slinging mud. I definitely think that there is a time and a place for that. But there is should also be a time and a place for us to, to just have conversations. We talked about issues that they're gonna have within their caucus. you know definitely, we talked about issues we have with candidate recruitment and messaging. Um, I think we can do that and, and not have it be just an angry you know an angry mob all the time. So I had a great time, you know I've, I've sparred with some of them on, on Twitter over the years and so it's nice to still be able to sit down and, and have just a, a good conversation.
2: Uh, I thoroughly enjoyed it. It's not going to surprise any of the listeners, particularly Becky, that I enjoy having conversations with Democrats. Um, But I think it's, I I absolutely thought it was wonderful to do. I felt good about the episode. It was fun to do. I think it's very important that Republicans and Democrats um, particularly have an opportunity to have discussions and debates in a lighthearted, fun way. Uh, I look forward to coming back when there's more Uh, Material for Becky and I to work with on the pro-Republican side. I think we're both struggling there. But the exercise is something that I uh, believe very strongly in. When I was the deputy chair and in other capacities, I would do a lot of uh, joint appearances with Ken Martin at the time and his predecessor in other capacities at at schools, talking about the importance of people voting and engaging in, 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 in politics, engaging in voting and engaging in civics. And so uh, my mantra back then remains the same today, is that I want people to be engaged in politics. If if they're champions for the DFL, great. If they're champions for the Republicans, that's outstanding. Uh, But just get engaged, pay attention. I think the podcast did a lot last week to help uh, make those type of conversations uh, more enjoyable, and hopefully it leads to more discussions down the road.
1: I completely agree. I think that's one thing that we hope about this podcast is that we are able to to talk to the far right, the far left, the moderate, and, and give a, a platform to voices of different, different um, places along the spectrum of how that goes. You know, one thing Tom Emmer uh, often said was, we all have the same end goal. It's the means of getting there that varies. And I think that last week was a good reminder of that.
0: And if for no other reason than to hear... Michael Broadcorb completely speechless. What, Becky, where do you think that was in the show? People want to speed up and uh, hear Michael just basically uh, without words.
1: You know, I think probably a good like 15-ish minutes in, right after we talked January and he, 6th. And, and he
0: even turned red in the face... When uh, I asked him a, a couple questions for Becky and uh, and And well, Michael. Becky
2: didn't have any strong response either. I mean, I'm not to.
0: But you even did a backup from the mic and yeah, the know, red face. I, I was not
2: prepared for that question. And the question was do we support Kevin McCarthy?
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, a speaker. I mean, yes. it should have been a, a you know, a a slam dunk. Oh, my right. gosh.
0: I mean, seriously, tune in just for that part. <laughs> I could not get these two people the, from the Republican side of the table to answer a straight-out question. For the life of me, I won't. Uh, I'm going to tee t- it up for you to listen to what we did finally get out of them. But I'm uh, speechless, Michael, and finally got to an answer. But. This week, what we're going to do, of course, is the news of the week. We're going to hit some of the main topics that you've been seeing on CNN and on Fox and all over your news feeds. We're going MSNBC. To hit MSNBC. We're going to hit those. And uh, then we're going to do our typical tweet of the week. We might have some good ones out there. But I want to tease something coming up here. Uh, you know, we're, we're here with Becky Allery and, of course, Michael Broadcorp, who have spent their basically their careers working... Uh, Working on, ca- on campaigns, working for candidates. So I-, I would like to, in the next couple of weeks, do something like Tales from the Inside, where you guys give us a little bit of the insider's uh, perspective of what goes on. I know last week, both the DFL uh, group and you guys said, boy, this could be a reality show, but... Nobody could ever work again if it was the case. So I want to pull some of those out of both of you. Maybe uh, share some personal stories, what it's like to work on on a campaign. Some of the things that those of us that have never done that would find out. You guys game for that? I'm absolutely game for that. I am game. All right. Well, let's hear some of the top news items of the week. This week, man, it was all over the news this morning when I was coming in here. The discovery of Biden's classified documents... Which were supposedly in a garage, and he said something about uh, something about a Corvette being in the the garage as well. Michael, Becky, give me your perspective on wh- what, what what are we seeing here?
2: Well, I, the, the big news, the big happenant, is that an independent, uh, a new special counsel has been appointed by the Department of Justice, Merrick Garland, to disc- to examine uh, how these classified documents ended up in multiple locations of. Uh, the former vice President current president of the United States uh, they were in uh, president biden 's home in an office that he had the problem uh, there 's a number of problems with this issue first and foremost um, this is a, a massive messaging win for the Republicans who have raised a number of concerns about the Department of Justice how that how the the matter down in Florida with the, the discovery how that pro- how that process of trump 's being, Trump being in possession of classified documents was handled versus how the matter with President Biden is being handled. A couple points to, to make at the beginning. Uh, Joe Biden at the time, it appears, when these documents were collected in, in his in, 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 and in his possession, excuse me, he was the Vice President of the United States. There's a difference between being Vice President and President. Trump's argument is that many of these documents that he was in possession of, he declassified. Now, there's a debate as to whether he properly declassified them or not or whether they were actually declassified. That's going to be up to the special prosecutor that's dealing with that. But the problem for Biden from the get-go has been um, that how did he have in in any possession of these classified documents since he couldn't um, declassify themselves as vice president? The other messaging problem has been Vice President Biden's own statement that these were near they they were locked up near his corvette.
1: They weren't on the street though. They were in a locked garage, Correct. right? That and makes it okay. S-
2: and so I think that there has been uncharacteristically in this administration a drip 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 effect that's gone out uh, somewhat fast, but it's still been a drip 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 about information related to this. This has become a hot topic for Republicans to discuss. In terms of what they view as the polarization and politicization—I should say—politicization of the FBI and law enforcement, and so this is going to be a real messaging fight between the Republicans and Democrats. Now that there are there are principles on both sides that are that are being that are being investigated by a special counsel for their handling and potentially mishandling of classified documents.
1: You know, one thing that I think is is really important to look at here is. Um that this original discovery of this happened what six days before the election, um, and and it was it was held silent, and I think that that's again you know a little questionable in itself. Um, I also think here you're looking at uh, basically the press or the public being allowed in and allowing. These two situations to be driven by the personalities of the person at fault, right? Trump had classified documents. He was defiant about it. He was not apologizing. He was, you know, being all Trumpy about it. Biden, you know, pled ignorance. Like, oops, sorry guys, I didn't know they were by my garage, but I didn't or in my garage, but I didn't really know. So I think you're, and people, you know, uh, one of the things you hear all the time is ignorance is not a reason you can't plead ignorance and 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 biden gets away with that quite a bit he is either silent or he pleads ignorance and um so i think you see that with this issue is that people are mad at trump because he's being defiant about it and people are letting biden off for being you know just pleading that he's i'm sorry woe is me kind of thing and and that shouldn't be the case the facts of the facts are the facts and this was an issue for both these men
2: but fair to say that that both donald trump and joe biden handled it differently by all accounts it was the Biden administration who notifi- or they notified the National Archives or there was there was some level of cooperation in terms of notification. It, there doesn't seem to be any information that the Biden, the Biden presidency, Biden's office fought the transmission or the re- the return of these documents over to the National Archives. By all accounts, they seem to be cooperating with it. Now, they did find more of them, but in all instances it does seem as if the Biden administration is cooperating with the National Archives and is raising questions themselves as to how these came into the possession. That stands in contrast with what former President That's Donald Trump That's a fair
1: Trump point. It, it also, though, has been a long time since he's been vice president. So these have been sitting out there. You know, in a locked garage. You know, not on the street again. But uh, for a good number of years. So you know, it's still it's still questionable. You could could look at that one congressman though. That's pretty sure these were planted. So I guess well that was crazy. Yet to yet to see the origination of these documents.
2: Now I, I think for I think what Republicans are going to do is is try to treat these two situations at equal. And, and from a messaging standpoint, they pretty much are. I mean, they're pretty much. I mean, there's some there's some. There's some sanding of the truth on, or there's some, some way you can kind of differentiate them a little bit. But in reality, um, uh, these are somewhat very similar situations, and they will be treated as such in the eyes of partisans. And that will be where, the, where this will spin out of control. Because the, the, the special prosecutor that's looking at it from the perspective of Trump is dealing with a much more serious situation than than he is with Biden correct is that fair to say back I think
1: that's fair to say but I think a lot of the frustration from you know the republicans that are being vocal on this is this isn't the first time we've seen kind of a, a glossing over of democrats issues we had the hillary server situation we have you know the infamous biden laptop situation you know I think there has been time and time and time again where you know republicans again a lot of these Trump-supporting, vocal, you know, Twitter uh, warrior Republicans have are really frustrated with the fact that Democrats seem to, to get passes on these kind of issues.
0: All right. The other top story that we've been seeing this week in the news is Representative George Santos, the newly sworn in New York Republican, is under fire for fabricating large parts of his resume. And he says the only way that he will resign, because he's being asked to resign, is if 142,000 people ask him to resign. Evidently, that's the number of uh, people that elected him in November's race in New York for the 3rd District, uh, the 3rd Congressional District. So, you guys, what do you think of this? Let's start with you, Becky.
1: Elected officials are held to a higher standard. I mean, whether they want to be or not, they are. And... elected officials candidates are elected about who they are and what they stand for i mean i would say you know a good solid whether it's 30 40 50 percent of folks vote for somebody truly based on who they are and how they represent themselves just so so to find out that someone is has has fabricated that all is a complete fraud um means that those voters those are not valid votes in my book do
2: you think he should step down?
1: I mean, you know, I, I, yes. I mean, technically, sure. He he got an election certificate. I do find a little bit of an issue with this call to step down after the swearing in. You know, they had a couple extra days. I think the the main Republican Party in his district um, called for him to resign the day after or, or later in the day after he was already sworn in. So basically a, a nothing burger, right? I mean, it was already a done deal. Um, but I mean, I mean, I think that. You should never be explaining his losing. Being a distraction is going to be an issue. This is going to follow him through throughout his his first term and and any subsequent ones if he is as lucky. And he's just not going to be anything. Get anything done and represent his constituents well at all.
2: I think it's the level of deception from this this man is is quite astounding. I mean, uh, he has lied about basically every aspect of his career and what he has accomplished and what he has done. And so Becky's point. About some of those votes being fraudulent. I mean, if there are people who are who voted in his district, based on reading a candidate survey of his background and made it, they voted for him for faulty reasons that didn't turn out to be accurate and true. Um, candidates always, and in life, people emphasize their successes versus their minuses. This guy is a complete fabrication. And the problem that I have is that it's just a distraction, and Republicans. Um, don't get the same advantages in the eyes of the media, and in just general process, they have to run a cleaner, tighter operation. And this guy is going to be a distraction. And it would be great if the House leadership would just dump him and tell him to resign and organize an effort to boot him out of the caucus. I think that's um, overly simplistic from St. Paul to say that versus being in Washington. Uh, there's, There's some institutional problems with that. I understand that. But just from a Republican who wants to see now that now that the drama is over in the House of Representatives in terms of who the speaker is, this will be an ongoing problem. And, and Republicans should just cauterize it and dump this guy. Uh, but I don't think that he will be going anywhere soon. I also will say to you that if he stays, which I think is all is in likelihood, I think his problems are only going to get worse. I think there's going to be there's there's an ethics complaint he's looking at. I've heard rumors of and discussions on FEC violations, complaints, and other stuff. So I think the best thing for for uh, Congressman Santos would be to just step down and walk away. But uh, I think that's going to be very difficult for him to do based on ego and also on the process and problems that he's going to be facing.
0: Well, I would be interested to see what he said on uh, his resume that was false. I haven't seen any of those. So that's, to me, what's of interest.
2: Now, I have a question for you, Scott. Sure. You... Uh, Follow politics, but not as closely as Becky and I do. Correct. The question, are you surprised? I mean, do, do you, th- someone, we have someone here in, in Congress who basically lied about their entire record. Does that, uh, is that disqualifying to someone like you? Do you think that that, that politics is, that's normal politics or what's your perspective I, on You it? know,
0: that's why I say that I'd like to know is the depth of it. I mean, is he saying that he has a, uh, you know, PhD in physics and he basically didn't, Even go to that college, or I mean, what is you know when you look at somebody's resume, we've all you know built resumes or reviewed resumes, and you always think, well, you know, how much are they stretching this or that? So I'm just wondering the degree of it. I I don't know what from what I've read, it it, it, they haven't shared like specifics.
2: He's lied about his academic background. He's lied about his professional background. He's lied about his athletic background. His athletic background. He's lied about his race religious background. Nearly every aspect of his life, he's lied about. He's also lied about um, his some of his family history, about uh, connections to the Holocaust, uh, whether family members survived. And so, if you're looking for, I mean, that's a pretty deep
0: list. That's a really deep list. I I would have. I'm not as aware as 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 tuned in as you two are. Uh, when it comes to t- subjects like this, but I just knew that he was looking, that he was <laughs> saying that 142,000 people and that he falsified information on his resume. But if it is as deep as you are talking about and if voters were voting for him based on what they saw on his record and that swayed them one way or the other, I'd say you're out of here.
2: Well, and it's also interesting in a sense that, particularly in Minnesota, uh, you know, there's campaign finance laws about what you can say about your opponent. Becky's running, I can't, li- I can't knowingly lie about her. But I can lie about myself. Um, there's nothing wrong. There's nothing in in the in in, in the campaign finance law that perc- I mean. I can't lie about endorsements. I can't go out and say I was endorsed by a political party. But I could go out and send out campaign material uh, saying that you know I that I you know graduated from Harvard or I went to the moon and stuff like that. And it's not against campaign finance law. It is if I say it about my opponent. And so you're in a really unique situation here because this guy is in trouble. And obviously, it's different. It's New York. It's FEC. uh, There's a whole bunch of other issues related to. But just thinking, keeping all politics local, it'd be very difficult to get in trouble for for someone to concoct those type of lies in Minnesota uh, as a legislative candidate and get themselves in trouble because it's not. It's it's tough to get in trouble when you're lying about yourself.
1: This isn't the first time we've seen issues with the vetting of candidates on on either side of the aisle. You know, it's it's. It's certainly not the first, and it certainly won't be the last. But one thing that kind of is striking to me is that there really isn't a, a firewall here. You know? So I, I, I went to law school. I, I did one year, tapped out, was going to do politics for a little bit and go back. Now I have no desire to ever go back. But going through that process, I mean, you have to write down every speeding ticket you've ever gotten. You have to you know, have these, these law schools really want to make sure that you know, folks that are going to law school and, and are going to be practicing law, not writing law, I'll come back to that. But practicing law, are you know upstanding citizens who are honest and and you know forthcoming about who they are, what their background is. So shouldn't there be a similar situation for these people who are writing the laws and and being the leaders of this country? I mean, it, it seems like there should be some vetting process. And I mean, it's it's wild to me that this didn't come out during the campaign. I mean, obviously the Democrats didn't do their job very well there.
2: I, I would agree with you, and it's one of the problems that you know there are. There are constitutional requirements to serve in elected office. Uh, this is a seat for the House of Representatives. There, he has to be a certain age, um, live in a certain state to represent that district, and those are, those are generally the requirements. Uh, but this guy is is going to create a sizable distraction. I know that uh, some Democrats uh, that from New York filed an ethics complaint against him. The Nassau County GOP, which is the Republicans in that area, have called on him to step down. And so we'll wait and see. But uh, I, I have a difficult time thinking that his life is, is going to get much better. I think he might, be at the top of his, uh, he might be at the top of the arc right now because him coming out and, and really disclosing and doing a tell-all as to what the truth is, I don't even know if he knows what the truth is. Right now, I think it's that problematic for him, and, and I think it would be best if, if Republicans found a way to just drop him.
0: All right, so we our guest for this week on the Broadcorb Report is waiting for us. So let's uh, do a little vote here: in or out for Santos? What do you uh, What do you say, Mister Broadcorb? Out and Becky Ellery.
1: That's an easy out for me. All right,
0: and uh, I've been persuaded uh, from <laughs> listening to the two of you and out as well. Today's guest on the Corp Report is State Representative Pat Garofalo, representing the beautiful area of Farmington, Minnesota. We're really looking forward to chatting with you today. A couple items that uh, stand out. We, of course, want to hear about the opening of the state legislature and some of your comments some of what you're seeing. That'll be uh, very interesting to hear from you. And of course, your pet project that everybody knows how you feel about sports betting and see where that is at in this session. And then we want to talk a little bit about this recent tweet that you sent out saying that, believe it or not, you're comparing Minnesota to be the next California when it comes to the political climate. But before we get there, you are from Farmington, Minnesota. So Here I am a St. Paul boy. Sell me on the reasons I should move
3: to Farmington. I guess the first thing I'd say is I don't want you to live in Farmington, so I'm not
0: going
1: to recruit you tell other
3: people why I want them in Farmington.
1: Wait, you don't want me
0: to live in Farmington? I'm kidding. Uh, Okay, I just thought you weren't looking for people to move to Farmington. All right, so sell me on the top points of why Farmington is the destination in the state of Minnesota.
3: Well, Farmington has good schools. It's a safe community with a very low crime rate. Um, There's no freeway that runs through it, so you don't need to worry as much about traffic. And it's a growing community that has a historic downtown, but also has new residents, new homes, and new restaurants, uh, new shops that are are being built out. It's uh, got a bright future ahead of itself. So if you're someone who likes good schools, you like low crime, and you like having good neighbors who are involved in their community it's a it's a great city to live in
0: all right so if i'm going to come out here it's uh, uh for the weekend and you're going to say all right todd i'm going to take you out and i'm going to show you the town of farmington where are you going to take me
3: i think on the east side of town i take you out to the bourbon butcher to a good restaurant down there i've actually heard uh, that
0: is really great
3: it's fantastic it really is I, I, whether people live in farmington or not it's worth a couple minute drive to just to come down and see it and then uh, good service and a good uh, culture down at the Pizza Man downtown. Uh, you can go down there. There's also a couple of bars and restaurants downtown that you can hang out, have a couple of drinks, watch a game. So really, um, just a, it's just a, it's a good place to live and it's a good community. And especially the fact that it's got that unique downtown flavor uh, because it was a rail station you know, with the railroad going through. Uh, it's just a it's a good place to be and it's a good place to hang out, regardless of a person's uh, political ideology or their views. Just a just a friendly open community
0: all right sold i'm gonna be looking for a realtor and uh, you know i might just be popping up a living next door to you there pat you never know we'll be hanging out at that new uh, whiskey or bourbon bar that you're talking about all right well let's get into the topics with our wonderful hosts here becky ellery and michael Broadcorb. take it away guys and we kind of teed it up as to what some of the topics we want to talk about with pat today
2: representative garofalo it's, it's great to have you here you're someone who you know we've uh uh, been friends for a number of years, uh, someone who I admire in the legislature, and, and it's good to see that you're still there. Um, how do you see the legislative session playing out, the focus, the agenda items? Um, where do you see the, this, this legislative session shaping up?
3: Well, with the DFL and total control um, and a multi uh, the largest state budget surplus in history, uh, you can see a pretty robust progressive agenda being implemented uh, without um, without any care for the 48% of the state that voted Republican, so despite having very narrow majorities of just one seat in the House, or excuse me, one seat in the Senate, and then a three-seat majority in the in the House, the um, they're going to have a from abortion uh, to spending, uh, additional regulations, uh, more uh, carbon-free requirements for energy, uh, labor union standards. Uh the Democrats are just pretty much going to be able to implement their agenda, and with uh, with being in total control of the majorities, they don't um, they don't have to worry about Republicans or getting Republican votes. There really aren't many, if any, prag- pragmatists or moderates in their caucuses. They're pretty much in alignment with what will be a, a very robust and a ambitious agenda of having more of the means of production and more resources being controlled by the state.
2: What's the role of Republicans this legislative session?
3: Well, I think our, our most important role is to try to speak to Democrats and educate them on the consequences of the proposals they're coming forward with. And it should be stated that very few, if any, of the ideas they are proposing are new. Now, these are all ideas that have been, have originated in other states. Um, this isn't like the 1980s DFL that championed open enrollment or charter schools as experiments for innovation and government and public service delivery. Uh, These are more ideas that have originated in California, New York, and have been implemented there, and they've been implemented with poor results. And so there really should not be much of a a dispute about what's going to happen here in Minnesota. Uh, Take, for example, uh, the FMLA Act, the Family Medical Leave Act. Uh, I call it the Friday and Monday Leave Act because now under law, people will be able to Uh, take a bunch of Fridays and Mondays off and their employer can't do anything about it but um, right now when you have benefits through your employer, when you take time off, if you take leave the government isn't involved in that Uh, what they're going to be doing is building a multi billion dollar processing claim center in government and then when you need to take leave from your private sector job for medical ailment or other qualifying conditions uh, you're going to get a check from the state of Minnesota to validate that And it's a an unprecedented intervention of the government between an employer and employees. But um, whether you have family medical leave or not right now, you're going to be paying a payroll tax along with your employer uh, to get these benefits from uh, from government. And that's just a that's a preview of coming attractions.
1: Yes, Representative Groffalo, thank you for joining us today. Um, Now, we do know that there is new leadership in the House Minority Caucus. Um, Can you maybe speak a little bit to that? Um, Any growing pains there or, you know, mission uh, strategy forward um, under new leadership that might be a little bit different than what we've seen before?
3: Yeah, so Lisa Damath is the new leader of the House Republican Caucus, and she comes comes to us with the experience of having leadership and public service uh, in her school board as the chair for local school board. Uh, she's a charismatic, smart, hardworking, and over the next two years, we're going to be working to get really good candidates to run to raise the resources and to, to be in alignment with whoever we nominate for president on the Republican side of the aisle to hopefully restore some balance and to have all of Minnesota represented at the government negotiating table as opposed to the just the Democrat side of our state.
1: We certainly like to hear that. Now, you did speak a little bit to, uh, you know, focusing on um, what is going to come down in two years, another election here just around the corner. Um, Obviously, Republicans across the board nationwide, you know, didn't have the results that we were hoping for this last election cycle. Um, Has there been any talk of things we need to do differently, audiences we need to talk more about, uh, remark more to um, any messaging we need to change or, or how we're going to hopefully have a more successful 2024 than we did 2022?
3: Oh, well, the answer to your question is yes. <laughs> <laughs> Those are all things that need to be on the table. And, and there's not one magic silver bullet. Right. I and mean, listen, this is Minnesota. And uh, whether people want to admit it or not, this is a blue state. There's more DFLers than Republicans. And. So in order for Republicans to be successful in our state, it's a little bit more complicated than Democrats. Uh, Democrats can just get their voters out to the polls and they win. On the Republican side, we have to energize the conservative base while also appealing to centrist, independent, moderate voters, and then even getting some, uh, getting some like-minded Democrats to cross over and vote for us. And that's a, that's a more challenging experience than, than the Democrats have in our state. And so all of that, how do you achieve those things? It's gonna mean having uh, better candidates, better messaging, better discipline, and we need to cease with the circular fires, firing squads that really cost us in the last election.
1: You know, I want to put you on the spot a little bit. I did see you tweet earlier this week um, just exactly what you were talking about, that we need better candidates. And specifically, you said we need better candidates than Trump and Biden. Do you have a, a horse in the race or someone you'd like to see throw their hat in the ring for president this next time around for the Republicans?
3: Well, I think there's a strong bench that we can tap into. Uh, I like uh, DeSantis down in Florida. Uh, Christy Noem in South Dakota is pretty good. I'm interested in Sununu. I don't know a lot about him up in New Hampshire, but he seems like a potential for a good candidate. Nikki Haley uh, has the resume and the success of being a, a, a proven election winner. So I think any one, of those, you know, any one of those four would be really good candidates who would be you know, 20 times better than Joe Biden and 10 times better than Donald Trump.
2: Representative Garofalo, this is Michael um, Would you accept and Would you seek and accept the nomination for presidency On the Republican side?
3: <laughs>
2: <laughs> no, I would, I, uh, let me, let me preface that I'm, I'm, I would put a long the sign off from
3: that Because I would refuse to go to Washington, D.C. For any job out there So uh, I'll have to I, I regretfully will have to turn down that nomination just like I, LBJ. Appreciate, I, I appreciate the sentiment, Michael You
0: just could never leave the beautiful town of Farmington Is that right?
3: Well, I don't think that's the issue. I just hate
0: Washington. <laughs> well, you D. sold D. me D. on Farmington. D. Come on, that classic downtown, the oh, restaurants. I, yeah.
3: I love I love Farmington, but I'm just telling you that like I hate Washington D.C. And uh, when I was asked if I was going to run for Congress there, I told people I'd rather stick a fork in my eye than run for Congress. So uh, that no, I my feature, the future of my life has no role in Washington D.C. None, zero, zilch, nada.
1: Well, I spent three years out there, and I always said I'd rather deal with a Minnesota winter than a D.C. summer. So I feel you on that.
3: Well, even beyond the weather, it's just, I mean, I mean Washington, D.C. is a joke. I mean, these guys don't even pretend to do their jobs anymore. we got a trillion-dollar annual deficit, and their primary focus is on trying to make each other look bad, and try to raise money for their next campaign. It's just not, I'm interested in getting stuff done, and there's not a lot of people in Washington doing that.
2: Um a quick a couple questions for you do you th- do you think there will be i mean democrats control the house the senate and the governor's office do you think that there will be a special session number one and number two how should republicans define success at the end of the the, the legislative session
3: um well i i don't think there's going to be a special session now i i say it like to balance the budget i don't think there'll be one the democrats will get their job done in time uh, if, but if there's like a natural disaster come this fall or some unexpected thing, I can see a situation where a special session may arise. But I don't. Um, there really should be no problems with the Democrats. They, they have the votes to do whatever they want. They got 18 billion dollars. So um, I just don't. I don't. I don't see that foresee that happening. In terms of defining success for Republicans, um, there really isn't a. Win. If we were able to successfully convince some Democrats to appeal to their more pragmatic and moderate instincts, then I think that would be a success. Um, Whether it's by um, getting them to not raise taxes, which they're proposing to do, uh, whether it is prioritizing spending on tax relief, just some of the money for tax relief, whether it's a rebate check or rate reductions, any of that, um, any spending they're doing, doing it in a way that's actually gonna help people instead of building new entitlement programs, any sort, any ability we can have to educate the Democrats on why they need to be more pragmatic than the sort of the militant left uh, path that California, New York, and Illinois have followed, uh, any one of those things would be a, a success. But make no mistake about it, our, our ability to be successful this legislative session is completely related to how Democrats vote because they have total control of the state.
1: Now, you just brought up California, and anybody that uh, knows you knows you're well-versed um, well, well um, versed in Twitter. A recent tweet you had said, Minnesota government is copying the policies of California and Illinois. No one should be surprised when we end up with the same results. Now, this tweet had some 100,000 views. Um, almost 600 likes, <clears throat> excuse me, and uh, almost 90 retweets, um, or over um, almost 100 retweets. Um, tell us a little bit, <clears throat> excuse me, tell us a little bit more about this and, and what, your, what your meaning here is.
3: Well, the biggest thing is that um, when you're looking at domestic migration, that really is the variable that demonstrates the appeal your state has to the rest of the nation. So, birth rates and death rates will rise and fall. international migration comes and goes. But domestic migration is a key variable that shows your what, how successful you are in terms of being appealing to Americans. and there's a lot of factors that play into domestic migration. So you know, for example, as a culture, we become more tol- we've become less tolerant to cold weather. So there's been a multi-decade trend of people moving from cold weather climates to to warmer climates. And you can't can't really blame Minnesota policies on that. You can't attribute um, that migration because of that. But what you can also see is there's other factors that, that come to play. So a place like California, which has every natural resource advantage in the world, has now lost population three years in a row. Um, this is despite being the gateway to the, um, to the Asian trade partners they have, to having oil, gold, mountains to the east, a beautiful ocean to the west, perfect climate. They're just they're bleeding people. And it's clear that when you look at the states that are having negative migrate, domestic migration, that is not a list that you wanna be on. And when we look at the the top 10 negative migration states in the country, Unfortunately, for the first time in my recollection, Minnesota's now on that list. Um, during COVID, we lost a lot of people and it was expected that we would rebound that, that those domestic migration numbers, but in fact, they have actually accelerated. And this is very concerning because it's accelerating a trend of wealth, of talent, and of people out of Minnesota to other places. And if you look at the states that are, that are in that company, uh, it's It's not a good list to be on, and government policies are they're not the only thing you know cost and taxes are not the the only factor that drives people to leave a state, but they're a significant role, and these factors are working against us, and candidly we're in trouble as a state this didn't This didn't start with the last election. Um, Minnesota has had some level or form of negative domestic migration uh, dating back to two thousand and two but there's been trends that have gone up or down uh, and have kept it reasonable. The acceleration we're seeing in domestic migration is is very concerning. It should be pointed out that the state of Oregon, which had less negative migration than us, uh, their state demographer called it a three alarm fire. And so Minnesotans should be concerned about this and should be asking why it is that so many people from Minnesota are willing to leave our state with so few willing to migrate here.
2: Now, from a redistricting standpoint, Minnesota lucked out because we were one of the states that was expected to lose a congressional district uh, this past this past cycle. We didn't. We kept all eight. This trend line continues. Representative Garofalo, uh, do you think uh, Minnesota could potentially lose a congressional seat?
3: Oh, we're we're absolutely going to lose a congressional seat next time. It should be noted that. The only reason we held on to uh, our seat in Congress is because Governor Cuomo killed so many people in New York with his nursing home policies. Oof. <laughs> I <laughs> yeah, think we just a, found
2: the uh, the audiogram for this week to this week's episode.
3: <laughs> but it's, it's it's true. If you look at the number, the excess deaths they had in New York and uh, their nursing homes, that was literally that's how close the margin was between us and Minnesota and New York holding on to our seat. So we're absolutely going to lose a, a congressional seat. But that can be attributed to some states growing faster than others the real concern is that why are people leaving minnesota to go to other states with so few people from other states coming here and that's a there's it's okay to have a conversation about that and and debate the the many factors that play into it but right now we've got an administration in minnesota and governor walls that's whistling by the graveyard and is denying that there's a problem and i think the event's In data over the next couple of months, I think there's going to be some pretty big news events that demonstrate that um, this, in fact, is a serious problem, and we need to work together to to improve things. And certainly, making an expensive state like Minnesota more California or Illinois expensive is not the right path for Minnesota.
2: Can you talk about the shift in the makeup of the DFL, at least in terms of the legislature, from when you first got in when you first started serving? You know, from my perspective, there there seems to be a lot of um, you know m- more traditional Democrats, more uh, blue dog Democrats that have left the legislature, and it seems to be much more of of a of a um, they've they've gone to the left on a number of issues. Uh, how has that changed in terms of your working relationship with legislators from when you first got into now?
3: Yeah, it's a good question, Michael. And the biggest change in the DFL is that they are much more. Metro focused. I mean, rural Democrats are essentially an endangered species now in Minnesota. Whereas regional centers like Wilmer, Faribault, Grand Rapids used to be seen as bellwether competitive seats. Now those are solidly Republican. Uh, the Democrats don't even look at those areas, but they've been able to offset those losses with gains that are primarily in the suburbs. So I believe right now in the Minnesota House, of the seventy members the Democrats have, I think eight or nine are from outside the seven county metro area, and that includes you know two two legislators from Duluth, one from Moorhead, a couple from Rochester and Mankato. There really isn't there isn't a lot of what I would call political or geographic diversity in the DFL, and you combine that with their ability with a eighteen billion dollars surplus and total control of government. It's why you're just seeing such a unified action on everything, because um, they, there really isn't much of a moderate wing in the DFL. There's a couple of individual actors, but uh, the power of the DFL is around a more uh, progressive, we, some, some people would call it woke, kind of more of a West Coast agenda. Uh, again, these ideas that you're seeing uh, pass through the legislature, these are not original ideas. These are, these are primarily originated from the left coast.
0: All right, so let's talk a little bit about sports betting. We know where you stand on sports betting, and uh, so give us a little
3: update. Well, um, there's three key stakeholders to legalizing sports gambling uh, it's the tribes, the tracks, and the teams. Uh, if any one of those three entities are opposed to a bill, it's highly unlikely it'll become law. Um, so even with the Democrats in total control, generally speaking, gambling needs to, in order for gambling changes to take place, you need some level of bipartisan support. Uh, there are both Republicans and Democrats who tend to expo- to uh, oppose gambling expansion. At least that's been the history on it. Now, the question is, this year with the Democrats in total control, will they just take some sort of sports gambling bill and roll it into a larger omnibus bill with other priorities to make it happen? And the short answer to that is, I don't know. Uh, I would not, uh, I would not take any action. I would not make any bets uh, on how that's going to play out. Certainly every state, including Canada to our north, has some form of legalized sports gambling. I'd like to see that happen here in Minnesota. But um, the Democrats are pretty busy right now, um, you know, codifying abortion rights in an extreme fashion, um, building a family medical leave program, spending a lot of money. So I think Sports gambling is probably lower on their agenda. I think they're more focused on like legalizing marijuana right now before they would move on to to uh, sports gambling.
0: Representative Pat Garofalo, thank you so much for joining us today on the Broad Corp Report. Be sure to tune in and listen to all the things Pat has to say. Well, that doesn't make sense. Let's do it again. <laughs> okay. Pat Garofalo, thanks for joining us on the Broad Corp Report. Definitely appreciate your spending time with us. Michael, Becky, any final comments for Pat?
2: Pat, where can people follow you on social media
3: at? Either on Facebook or you can go to Twitter. My Twitter handle is at Pat Garofalo. And uh, Garofalo is spelled G-A-R-O-F as in Frank, A-L-O. If you can't remember how Garofalo is spelled, just remember the vowels go A-O-A-O
2: good tip thank you sir
1: that is a great tip well we're really appreciative of the time today Um, definitely recommend you follow him good 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 follow there lots of insight lots of um snappy little responses and you'll always know where mr garofalo representative stands on all the issues of the day
2: thank you representative so much have a great day okay
3: you too. Thanks for having me.
2: Yep. Bye-bye. It was great to talk to Representative Garofalo, and I appreciate his patience. Um, one of the things I learned this episode in recording a podcast, it's important to press record. And so I learned something this week.
1: Imagine that. You wow. have to
2: press. There's a red button you have to press record on, and um, I didn't press it. So I appreciate his patience and diligence, <laughs> and, and uh, I learned something today.
0: All right. Let's move on to our Tweet of the Week and uh, see, what, see what was coming across your Twitter feeds this week. Becky
1: yeah so obviously we give Michael a hard time about his his you know intricacies and in friendship with the with the DFL um, this week he we based on our interview or our, our crossover episode with the DFL debrief um, he had some nice words to say about congressman tom emmer and and tweeted as such he tweeted an audiogram uh, a clip of the show um and got a reply saying you praised an elected official from the mngop with a um a south park gif that says the impossible has happened so uh i'm not the only one that likes to give him a hard time and uh thank you mason for for pointing that out
2: well i mean yeah i mean
0: <laughs> well, what what is your tweet of the week? Oh,
2: my tweet. You don't are, have To uh, defend I, it, should I should I reply? Sh- sure. Is that what you want?
0: Well, sure. Go ahead. If you have, I'm, I'm, if you, you a I
2: thought it was a great point. It's, I always, I'm, I, I, as, as uh, I recognize the point, I think that, that that for 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 some of these some of these uh, new operatives that are out there, I don't think they they recognize the the depth of some of the stuff. I, the, how far I go back, but but in, in, if they're paying attention now, they probably they probably see that I'm just. Being critical. All of right, Republicans. your tweet
0: of
1: the week. Wait, real quick though, I got to I got to give a little shout out to that because I was one that came up, you know, in the party when when Michael was working at the at the MNGOP. He does have a really strong background here. He was the one, the go to, the the best messenger around. So uh, he's still a good Republican in my heart and soul, and I, I hope everybody else is as well. Thank All you right,
2: so Michael, much, Michael.
0: Your tweet of the week.
2: So this one I picked. I did this. I knew we were going to be discussing. And I picked this intentionally because I wanted it to see your reaction to it because I, I consider you. A foodie, I consider you kind of someone who's sophisticated in that way,
0: Michael. I, okay, I'm going to let you continue, but maybe a foodie is somebody that you know, like will uh, write a, pull out my credit card and uh, eats in some of the finer establishments. But uh, I, my cleaning lady was at my house, and I said to her, "You know what? I cannot get my oven door open," and she said, "Todd, I've been cleaning for you." Uh, for a while now, and your oven door has not been open in a year and a half. Woo! I did not use my oven wow. in my house. And I said, I don't believe that. I cannot believe that, Amy. She said, Todd, you probably don't remember, but I to- asked you at the time. I can't get your oven door open, and that was a year and a half ago. So I did, not- I did not even use my oven for a year and a half. So if it doesn't go in the microwave, it doesn't go in my cart.
2: That's fantastic. I mean, it validates my point. All right. It does validate my point. Dallas-based franchisee, legendary restaurant brand, plans to reintroduce Steak and Ale know. to the Twin Cities later this year. I, I was excited about it. It's hard. I mean, I remember driving on 494 yeah. in Bloomington and seeing Steak and Ale uh along the way tell me your reaction to this news well
0: we you and i very likely could have been sitting on a bar stool next to each other and steak and ale because back in the day that 494 strip uh had some very interesting restaurants along that strip where people would hang out and uh, pick each other up put it that way but steak and ale yeah they're famous fries do you remember they're famous yeah they have great great fries I think it's an interesting throwback, and I wish them well. I believe the first one is going to be in Burnsville. And uh, they're planning on opening how many? It was like... Quite a few, yeah. I think we
2: should try to get an episode filmed there. <laughs> I think we should try to get an episode filmed there someday. Uh, yeah, and we can get into. I mean, you can, You can
0: absolutely. Work, we could get in there.
2: You can work your magic, handker. sure. You have sources in. at legendary restaurant brands that can I, get us into Steak and Ale.
0: I, I find it interesting though, because it is sad when you go and you look at some of the restaurants in St. Paul and Minneapolis, and you know, there's just not many, too many butts and seats. And wow, for a big chain like Steak and Ale to come back, believe in this market. Good for them. Let's hope something happens. Absolutely. All right, so yes, I like that tweet of the week from both of you. Okay, so thank you for joining us this week on the Broadcord Report, and remember, wherever you hear your pod- podcast, please give us the thumbs up. Let us know what you want to hear on future podcasts. We certainly appreciate that. Certainly, give a shout out to the DFL Debrief. Listen to theirs as well. They have a lot of uh, great content and. Once again, it's Becky Allery, Michael Broadcorp, and the moderator Todd Walker out for this week's Broadcorp Report.